got two of these. Let me spin this one out of the way. Is that good? Let's just put one more of the other there. Okay. Y'all, it is good for me to be with you here at Fairview Road here in Gadsden, Alabama. As Billy said, Northeast Alabama has always been home to me. There have been a couple years here and there where I've had to move away for educational purposes, but you can take the boy out of Northeast Alabama, but you can't take Northeast Alabama out of the boy. And it's good to, to be with you here today. I sat a moment ago, and I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to get emotional. There's enough young people here today to really help the church in Northeast Alabama. Our area has been blessed through the years with sound and faithful congregations. There are, there are some exceptions. But you don't know how blessed you are to live in this area. You are very, very blessed to, to grow up here. And I want y'all to... Uh, I want to try to say something to you here today, not because it comes from me, but because it's the truth. And I want you to remember what we go over here today. And when decades pass, as Billy says, decades, it's hard to think of like that. <laughs> I hope that you're sitting in pews like this one day with your kids. And that I hope that you're helping the church to be stronger than ever in this area. And I really believe that some of these fundamental things that as far as I can remember, have been with me ever since I was living at home. I think these are some things that have helped me, and I hope there will be some things that help you. Hope you have your sheets. Be ready to fill these out. All the writing you've got to do until the last point is actually just the major points themselves, but I hope you can fill them in as we go. What did I learn at home that helps to keep me faithful? Number one, and this is basic, it's fundamental. Heaven and hell are forever. I know eternity is something that is hard to impress upon the minds of adults. It's hard enough for us to grapple with eternity as adults. But I remember that even as a child, I was taught that heaven and hell are both forever. Eternal, meaning that there's no end. That once we pass from the walks of this life and once we are judged, that wherever we are sent, there we will be forever and ever and ever without end. Okay. Now, what that tells you and me is that life is no joke. That this is not a uh, practice run. This is not something to take lightly or flippantly. Life is no joke. Life is serious, and the reason life is serious is because this is a proving grounds for where we are going to go. That we determine by our own actions and by our own decisions whether we want to be in heaven for eternity or whether we choose to be in hell for eternity. But wherever we go, that's where we will be forevermore. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, Jesus helps us to understand the eternality of both of these places. At the end of this great description of the judgment day, Jesus said, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, 
those on the left hand, those described as the goats, if you will, earlier in this judgment scene, but the righteous, those on the right hand, into life eternal. Someone asked, well, how long will hell last? Hell will last just as long as heaven lasts. That's easy to understand. Well, how long will heaven last? Well, wonderfully, heaven will last forever. Young people, I know it can be frightening. Nobody has probably been scared more about it as a young person than I was. It can be frightening to think about eternity. Okay? But what I want you to know here is that God has this under control. God has eternity in His hands. God's got it under control. It's not something necessarily to be frightened or scared to death about, but it is something to respect and to remember. Okay? This is not a practice run. This is life. You are living life. And heaven and hell await all of us, one place or the other. In Revelation 20 and verse 10, we can read about the everlasting suffering the everlasting punishment of hell, it's not pleasant. It, 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 it's scary for all of us to think about. But you know what? To be scary in a healthy way is a good thing. Fear in the sense that it causes you and me to remember and to respect the seriousness of what's going on. That's a good thing. Do you know that out of all the New Testament characters and out of all the New Testament writers, do you know who spoke of Gehenna Hail the most? Jesus Christ. The word Gehenna is only used, I forget the exact count, it's either 12 or 13 times, I think, in the whole New Testament. And Jesus Christ used it every one of those occurrences except one. James used it in James chapter 3 in discussing the tongue of all things. Okay? So hell is serious. Hell is eternal. But in 1 Peter 1 and verse 4, and I want you to keep this ever before your minds, heaven is eternal. What's wonderful about heaven is when you and I get there, we'll never have to leave. And by the way, you'll never want to leave. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 and verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Three descriptions incorruptible, meaning that it cannot perish or break down. Undefiled, meaning that it is not tainted by the block of sin. And then that fadeth not away. Now that's a hard one for us to understand because what it means is, is heaven never even gets old. We're in heaven forever and ever, and yet 10,000 years after we walk through the pearly gates, so to speak, heaven is just as new to us then as it is the day we walked in. And that's something we can't fully appreciate as people because we buy a new car and a few months later that new car smell is gone. You know, We buy some new clothes and after you wash them once or twice that, that color is, is faded. We're used to things in life that are new. We're used to them becoming old. And so we probably tend to think of heaven that way. And, and I've heard people ask, well, won't we get bored in heaven? You'll never be bored in heaven. That little description right there in 1 Peter 1 and verse 4, and that fadeth not away, that translates a Greek term that means the new never wears off in heaven. That's wonderful to consider. 
Now you might be asking, well, Cliff, why is it this way? Why is it that God made us and, and, and that we now have eternal destinies before us? And, and why is it that, that heaven is forever? And why is it certainly that hell is forever? Why is it that way? Do you remember back in Genesis 1 and verse 27 when the Bible says, So God created man in his own image, male and female created he them. Words to that effect. I think I butchered that. But you remember there in Genesis 1 and verse 27 that we were created in the image of God. That means that you and I, being in the image of God, it doesn't mean that God has fingers or toes or hands or feet. That's not what it means. What it means is, is that God is an immortal, eternal spirit and He endowed you and me with the same. I don't mean any disrespect and I don't know that this is the best way to say it, but to... Trying to help get this point across, I'm going to choose to say it this way. It's almost as if, almost as if God replicated himself when he made man. And, and I don't mean that we're gods, we're, we're not divine, I don't mean that. But what I do mean is, is God stamped on you and me, he stamped his divine image. And that means you're going to be somewhere a million years from right now. I'm going to be somewhere a million years from right now. We're made in God's image. And that should help us to understand why heaven and hell are forever. And then finally here under this point in Matthew 16 and verse 26. You remember when Jesus asked the question. He said, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jesus says, you know what, you can be successful, you can grow up and get the best of jobs and make the greatest of livings and, and you can be successful in popularity and in power and in money, but Jesus says, if you die lost and then you're consigned eternally to a devil's hell, Jesus says, you've lost it all. You've lost it all. Young people, there is nothing any more serious than your soul. Nothing any more serious than your soul. Nothing any more important than being right with God. Why? Because heaven and hell are forever. I'm thankful that I learned that while I was at home. And I hope that none of you ever lose sight of that fact. Heaven and hell are forever. Lesson number two, I want you to write this down. And you need number two to follow right on number one. You can count on God's forgiveness. You know, as fearful as it is to think about eternity, if you couldn't count on God's forgiveness, it would be unbearable. It would be unbearable. But the wonderful news is, is that God never created hell for you or me. A verse I have there on your outlines that we didn't go over, Matthew 26 and verse 41. We learned that hell was a place and is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not intended for man. It was not intended for you or me. God, God wants to forgive you or me. You can count on God's forgiveness if you'll comply with God's conditions. In 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 4, we read of God that He will have all men to be saved. Now, that's not saying everybody will be saved. It's saying that it's God's will. It's God's desire 
for all men to be saved. And then Paul says at the end of verse 4 the way that can happen and to come into a knowledge of the truth. That's the way men can be saved is through a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You know, there are a lot of you here this morning that I don't know your names. Some of you I've just met and I've learned your names this morning. Some of you I've known for a long time, and I know your names, but there's a lot of faces here that I don't know your name. But I know the meaning of the word all, A-L-L. I know what that means. And when we read in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, He gave Himself a ransom for all. I know that your name is right there in that, just like mine. That means that you and I can count on God's forgiveness. We can count on it. We need to submit to His terms. And we need to avail ourselves of it. We need to, to do what we need to do to get it. Because in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. Peter says. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness. But is long suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 2 we've read that it's God's will that everybody be saved. He gave Jesus Christ to die in order to make that a possibility. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 we've read that God's not willing that any should perish. Well what's the alternative then Lord? If I'm not to perish what am I to do? And the Lord would say repent. But that all should come to repentance. Isn't it wonderful to know that if you and I will repent, if we will change our hearts and our minds and, and turn our lives to God in His service, that God will forgive us. You can count on God's forgiveness. And then turn over with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful passage on the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of God. Beginning at verse 1. And you hath he quickened. That word means made alive. God has made us alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. All of that is to say you used to live like the devil and for the devil. That's the way you used to live it. Verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation, our manner of life in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires and the lust of the mind, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature or by long-standing practice the children of wrath, even as others. Pretty much everything in verses 2 and 3 is bad. Have you noticed that? Verses 2 and 3 tells us you used to live like the devil, you used to act like the devil. Verse 3 tells us you used to live like the world, you used to be in the world, you used to be the world. On one hand, you're the children of disobedience. On the other hand, you're the children of God's wrath. That's not a good thing. You never want to be the object of God's wrath. But notice the first word in verse 4. But. But. 
God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Verse 1, we were dead in sins. But again, He hath quickened us together with Christ. He has made us alive with Christ. And then in parentheses, by grace ye are saved. When I was thinking about how I wanted to word this second point, I settled on, you can count on God's forgiveness. But I almost worded it to the effect, you can know God loves you. That's something I learned at home. That's something I learned growing up. Is that God loves me. Okay, Even when I don't love God, God loves me. Even when I do things that show and demonstrate I don't love God. God loves me. And if I will but turn to Him, God has mercy. You can count on God's forgiveness. Young people, I'll just tell it straight. There's really no excuse for anybody to go to hell. There's no excuse. I know it kind of hits us between the eyes when you hear a preacher say what I'm about to say. But in essence, when Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary, He was basically telling the world, if you go to hell, it will be over my dead body. Think about that. There's no excuse. Because God is a God of love. God is full of rich, rich mercy. You can count on God's forgiveness. And when He forgives, Hebrews 8 and verse 12, when He forgives, He forgives evermore. I remember as a young child learning that when God forgives my sins, that those same sins, I never have to see them again. They never come back up. Don't you wish sometimes that people forgave that way? (laughs) Don't you wish that when when someone supposedly forgave us in everyday life that that maybe a, a week later or a month later, that same mistake didn't come back up? Well, with God, it doesn't. Now, you may go back and you may commit the same sin again, and that's a different matter. But what God has forgiven you for, that's gone. He remembers those no more. You can count on God's forgiveness. Number three, you need to learn this. We all need to learn this while young, if possible. Number three, there is only one true church. There is. Now, I know we live in a politically correct society where that's not popular to hear. We like to be told that, hey, we can all have our own way. We can do our own thing. And and certainly when it comes to religion, man, when it comes to religion, the fact that we're religious at all ought to be enough. Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Listen, I'm not anyone to tell you or anybody else that you're wrong. But the Bible tells you you're wrong. Okay? If you're trying to do your own thing, religiously speaking, and you're trying to do it away from the one true church that we read about in the Bible, the Bible's telling you you're wrong. I'm just a messenger. I love you. I hope you get it right. But that's not going to change what the Bible says. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, the Bible says, Jesus was speaking to Peter, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Have you ever known Jesus to tell a lie? 
Peter tells us he never told lies. 1 Peter 2 and verse 22. Jesus promised to build his one true church, Matthew 16 18. He did. That one true church is still on earth today. You can still be a part of it. You look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ, what, what is your body? It's my church. Lord, what is the church? It's my spiritual body. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. The body is the church. The church is the body. And then you turn over three chapters later to Ephesians 4. There is how many bodies? One. How many churches? One. The body is the church. Church is the body. Jesus promised, I will build my church. Singular. Jesus never promised to build two much less 200 or 2,000. Jesus said, I will build my church. Later, Paul tells us the church is the body. Paul tells us there is one body, meaning there is one church. Young people, if these matters strike you as painfully simple, <laughs> that's because they are. When it comes to something as important as salvation... And when it comes to a matter as important as the church, God has made it painfully simple in the scriptures. It takes the help of the devil and the help of a lot of others working for the devil, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to try to confuse and convolute this issue. There is only one true church. That's what the Bible teaches. I hope we're raising a generation of young men and young women who not only know and understand that, but I hope we're raising a generation of young men and young women who aren't ashamed to lovingly stand up for that. Another point we'll get to, and I can't get ahead of myself too much here, but no matter what anybody else says, that doesn't change what the Bible says. The Bible clearly teaches us that there's that one church. You're like, well, Cliff, how can I be a part of that one church? You said it's still on earth today. You know, I'm corresponding with an inmate in Pennsylvania. He's serving a long, long sentence in Pennsylvania for manslaughter. And he basically told me in the letter before this most recent one that it is impossible to, to be a part of the church that we read about in the Bible. Well, I, I've, I've got to take that to task. <laughs> Why is it impossible? In Acts chapter 2, Peter was standing up preaching. He told them in verse 36 that Jesus was the Lord in Christ. And in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? The idea being, what shall we do to save ourselves from this great error we've committed, this great sin in crucifying Christ? <coughs> Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You move down to verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word, see, it was the same way back then that it is now. You tell people today, Repent and be baptized, not everybody's going to gladly receive that. 
Same way back then. But now as then, they that gladly received his word will be baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Friends, I know that if I do the same thing they did, that the Lord will add me to the same body He added them. You say, well, how can you be so sure? God is not a respecter of persons. Acts 10, 34 and 35, Romans 2 and verse 11. If you and I obey the same gospel they obeyed without addition, without subtraction, God will add you and me to the same church He added them. The church that belongs to Christ. As for all these others around us, and there are a lot of churches in the world, different kinds of churches. 1 Corinthians 1, 10-13 clearly demonstrate that denominationalism and a divisive spirit is sinful. Sinful. If the Corinthians could not align themselves under men like Paul and Peter and Apollos, wearing their names and, and dividing off, as it were, into their groups, then assuredly today we cannot align ourselves under men like Calvin and Luther and Wesley and divide off into their groups and to think we're all right. Denominationalism is sinful. <laughs> My kids growing up in the home, there's a lot of things they, they didn't know, I'm sure. But one thing they knew from a very young and tender age is that denominationalism is wrong. The churches of men are just that. They're the churches of men. I want to be a part of the church of Christ. The church that belongs to Christ. I know I'm in that body because I've done what they did in Acts 2. There is only one true church. I hope all you young people in here can live to be a hundred. I hope you can live to be a hundred and, and, and maintain relative health all the way to a hundred. But if you do, that fact will be just as true a hundred years from now as it is this morning. That's not changing. That's not going anywhere. And that brings us to, to number four. Write this down for number four. Faithfulness is more important than numbers. Faithfulness is more important than numbers. Billy mentioned a moment ago that my dad had passed away, and he did back in 2013. These last two points bring to mind some statements my dad used to make. My dad told me that some, the latter one especially over and over and over and over. But I've heard my dad make statements to the effect before he said, Son... I'd rather worship out under a shade tree with ten people that are doing what's right than to worship in a cathedral with thousands of people doing what's wrong. Mm. That's something you need to hear. I needed to hear it when I was growing up and I think everybody needs to hear that. When it comes to the church of Christ, the church that we read about in the Bible, don't ever expect to be in the majority. Okay? You just need to know that while young. In, in most cases, now there will be some exceptions, but in most cases, the church of Christ is not going to be the biggest. The church of Christ is not going to be the most popular. 
The church of Christ is not going to, to be the most well-liked. But faithfulness to God is more important than numbers. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus made it clear that when it comes to religion, you don't want to be in the majority. Many are traveling that wide way, that, that broad way that leads to destruction. Few there be that are traveling that narrow path that leads unto life. And then in Exodus 23 and verse 2, Moses told the Israelites, he said, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Someone says, well, I don't know why the, the church of Christ has to teach this. Nobody else believes that. If the church of Christ teaches it, it better be because it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, frankly, I can't help who else teaches it or doesn't. You better go with what the Bible says. You can't follow a multitude to do evil just because they're the multitude. Just because they're the majority. And then number five. Write this down. The truth will stand when the world is on fire. If I had a dollar for every time my daddy said that growing up, we could probably go out and eat after this is over. <laughs> daddy said that a lot. Most time it was more like this. He'd say, son, the truth is the truth. And the truth will stand when the world is on fire. Someone says, well, Cliff, I don't like what you said about heaven and hell lasting forever. I can't help it. It's the truth. And when I'm dead and gone, it'll still be the truth. Well, I don't really like what you said about there only being one church. I can't help it. It's the truth. I showed you book, chapter, and verse. There's a lot more where those came from. And when I'm dead and gone, it'll still be the truth. And there'll still be men standing and preaching it, too. Well, I don't like what you said about about being in the faithful minority, the faithful few. I can't help it. <laughs> see, you see a pattern here? Gospel preaching is never about pandering or catering to what the people want to hear. It's about just telling the truth. Telling it in love, and I love you enough to tell you the truth. The truth will stand when this world is on fire. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's already been settled. And, and even more, it's settled in heaven. It's not settled on earth. It's settled in heaven. 1 Peter 1.25 The word of the Lord endureth forever. And then John 12 and verse 48 will one day be judged by those words. We're going to be judged by the word of God that is settled and that does endure forever. Now, because the truth will stand when this world is on fire, that there are any number of things that don't affect the truth. Now, I won't give you a list of these. Beside Genesis 37, write down that feelings do not affect the truth. In those verses, Genesis 37, Jacob had been told that his son Joseph was killed. There was even a coat of many colors that had been dipped in blood. And you know what Jacob believed? He believed his son was dead. Do you know what his feelings told him? His feelings told him, you're going to go down into the grave mourning. 
His feelings told him that his son Joseph was dead. You know what was true? Joseph was very much alive. You're going to encounter, no telling how many people in your life, when religion comes up, they're going to want to base everything they believe on feelings. Feelings aren't worth anything. Feelings don't change the truth. Feelings can very well be wrong. Number next there, beside Matthew 15, 3 and 9, write down that tradition doesn't affect the truth. What do we mean by tradition? Well, I can give you an example. My mom and daddy always believed this. My grandparents always believed that. Well, with all due respect to your grandparents or to your mom and daddy, that doesn't affect the truth one bit. It doesn't matter what they believed or what they did. What does the Bible say? That's true. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Tradition, even family tradition, doesn't affect truth. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 1, 25, and then into chapter 2 and verse 5, Human wisdom does not affect truth. There are a lot of people, a lot of people in this world, who disagree with the things that I'm sharing with you this morning. A lot of people. And a lot of those people have degrees littering their office walls. Far more educated than am I. And I admit that freely. A lot of them are far more intelligent. By the way, there's a difference between intelligence and education. Sadly, the problem is a lot of people get educated beyond their intelligence and then we have problems. But there are people who are not only more educated than I, there are people who are just flat out more intelligent than I am. And they would stand and they would disagree with everything I'm telling you this morning. And you know what? They're still wrong. (laughs) And it's not because they disagree with me. I'm a nobody. It's because what they're disagreeing with is written right here in black and white. And folks, i got news for you, man. And you need to learn it young. This is not going anywhere. That's what point number five is. The truth is going to stand when this world is on fire. And it doesn't matter how many PhDs, how many THDs, how many MDs, how many doctorates, how many whatever want to say whatever they want to say about it. The truth is still the truth. And the truth is still going to stand when this world's on fire. And you're going to stand in judgment and you're going to be judged by it. And so am I. We'll all be there. Human wisdom, human tradition, human feelings. None of these things or anything else for that matter affects the truth. These are the type of things I learned coming up at home. Now, my parents were far from perfect. (laughs) I appreciate what Billy said about a while ago, but my parents were far from perfect. Just like yours. Just like I am as a parent. I'm far from perfect. But I thank God that they saw to it that I knew these things. 